Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Um, our next presentation is by Dr. Gina Morazzo, who is a professor of medicine and director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, um, and uh, is great to have uh, her as a colleague. She's going to be speaking to us today about STIs, but especially the impact of COVID and updating us on a lot of new information regarding the treatment of common sexually transmitted infections in the setting of PrEP and HIV. Jeannie, welcome. Well, it's really uh, fantastic to be here, although it's kind of bittersweet. Those are my disclosures. Uh, I really miss seeing everybody in person, but I'm delighted that we can at least talk about this and really enjoy Dr. Buckbinder's panel. Here's the learning objectives. You can take a quick look at those. And what I'm really going to talk about today are just to remind you that we are having a continued crisis in sexually transmitted infections in the United States. Um, COVID-19, if anything, is probably going to make it worse, as I'll talk about, and we'll talk a little bit about that. And then I'm going to do a very quick update of what some changes are going to be coming um, with the 2020 STD treatment guidelines um, that are particularly relevant, relevant for HIV care settings. So um, we'll get right into it. I um, always like to start with syphilis just because it is sort of the quintessential infectious disease that we are seeing in our HIV infected patients and in our patients on PrEP who are at risk for HIV. These are the most updated data that we have from the CDC. This is a surveillance report that came out last fall, and it summarized the data from 2018. Um, the upper graph on the left side of the screen is a little bit earlier than that, but I like to show this to remind people that Around 1995, we were talking about eliminating syphilis. The increases that we saw um, in the 70s and the pre-HIV era had really, really bottomed out, all because of fear around HIV, and we know that now. Um, with the advent of antiretroviral therapy, with the advent of PrEP, we have seen a continuing explosive uh, increase in syphilis. And if you look on the right-hand side, you can see what's happened in cases from 2014 to 2018. Uh, we now are seeing over almost 15,000 cases annually in men who have sex with men. That has been a relentless increase. But there have been similar slopes of increases in men who have sex with women and women. There are a lower number of cases but you will definitely be seeing more of these infections. So while 88% of cases are occurring in men, 80% of those are in MSM, we still are seeing increases in other groups. Of the uh, MSM who are coming in uh, with uh, syphilis in that, in that slide, and I should mention that's early syphilis, primary, secondary, and early latent syphilis, about half of them are HIV infected. A concomitant problem is that we're seeing, as I mentioned, an increase in women and not just an increase in early syphilis in women. Uh, there was an MMWR that I'm going to show you in a second that pointed out the consequences of this increase in primary and secondary syphilis in women. And that is a 154% increase in congenital syphilis. We had over 1,300 cases of congenital syphilis last year in the United States. That's a huge public health failure. And I'm going to show you um, who was more likely to get that. These are mostly related to prenatal care. And this is the MMWR that literally came out just a month or so ago, and it 
characterized those 1,300 uh, cases of congenital syphilis that were seen, and they looked at it by census region. Um, and what I want to point out is that most of these women had babies born with syphilis because they had no timely prenatal care and no timely syphilis testing. You might wonder why I'm bringing this up in the setting of HIV, because women in our HIV care settings are definitely at risk for this. Jody Dianotum presented a very nice presentation at CROI last year looking at this in the uh, scenic sites um, in, in the, uh, the in U.S.-based um, HIV care settings, and we are definitely seeing this mostly associated with drug use and possibly transactional sex in our HIV, um, in our women living with HIV. But 41% of the cases that occurred in the Western region had no timely prenatal care and no timely syphilis, uh, syphilis testing. So please remember that the most commonly missed opportunities for prevention of syphilis are trying to get these women tested and into prenatal care and really should not be happening. The other thing I just want to touch on very briefly, and we mentioned this during Dr. Buckbinder's presentation, is this whole question about the relationship between STIs and PrEP. Uh, lots of, I would say, debate in the first couple of years when it became clear we were seeing so much more STI uh, infections in primarily men who have sex with men who were using PrEP. We have not seen this in women, and I think that's an important point we can discuss if we have time. But a lot of the debate was around, is it because men are completely giving up on condoms and having more unprotected sex, and or how much of it is that physicians and providers are actually screening more, particularly at extra genital sites, because men are coming in for PrEP care. Um, I like to show this JAMA paper just because I think it's the um, one of the nicest comprehensive analyses that tried to disentangle both those contributions. Um, this is from the Australian group, uh, which has had a lot of experience in this area. And the bottom line is that it's probably a combination of both. And the Fenway data from Boston um, show pretty much the same thing, although with a smaller number of people, that there is a component of if you look more, you will find more, but there is also no question an increase in the absolute incidence that we're seeing. So just an emphasis that these are not going away and we really need to perform screening. And I'll talk a little bit more about extragenital screening in a minute and why we need to do it. So what's going on with gonorrhea? Um, and I should mention no changes to management of syphilis that are going to come up in the guidelines. It's just more really of the same sort of make sure you're doing serologic screening. Remember that you need to follow up uh, serologic screening after treatment every quarter in people living with HIV, but you really don't want to change your management unless you fail to see a decline of fourfold by six months and uh, resolution of the serologic response by a year. So just keep that in mind. So what's going on with gonorrhea? Similar increases in incidence. Um, unfortunately with gonorrhea, we have the additional challenge of antimicrobial resistance, which I'll show you in a second. We also have the challenge of extragenital infections, namely the pharynx and the rectum, and really hard to eradicate gonorrhea from the, the pharynx. Nothing really works very well except for parenteral ceftriaxone. Um, so here are the most recent data from the GISP project, which is the gonococcal isolate surveillance project that looks at um, samples of gonorrhea 
all urethral, very important, um, from only men. This does not represent women. And these are men who attend STD clinics. So it is overrepresented by men who have sex with men. It's a really important point. And it does not look at rectal isolates, just a couple of caveats. So what have we seen? If you look at the data for azithromycin, cefixime, and cetraxin, remember, we used to use cefixime to treat gonorrhea. It was a great oral agent. Uh, we used it after we stopped using quinolones, or ciprofloxacin in particular. But we stopped doing that in 2008. And we stopped doing that because, as you can see in green there, Around 2009, 2010, uh, we saw a continued increase, even though it was very small, of resistance to cefixime in uh, the isolates of gonorrhea. So we're no longer using that. Luckily, ceftriaxone has remained effective, but you can still see that there are some isolates that do have um, elevated MICs. And I should mention that the, the specific cutoffs are down there for you microbiologically inclined people. What's really frightening and really informed the changes to the 2020 guidelines that you're going to see is this very impressive increase in resistance to azithromycin. So look at this from 2013 to 2018, we are getting well above uh, 4%. And in fact, in some areas, we've now seen up to 20% uh, resistance to azithromycin. So you know, the guidelines, as I show you here in 2015, did say that regardless of what a chlamydia test showed, you should treat with ceftriaxone 250 milligrams IM, and you should add azithro. And the reason that people recommended adding azithro here was to give you two antibiotic classes with this unproven uh, theoretical idea that this would stave off resistance. Well, clearly that was not a success, um, as you can see. Um, and what we're going to see in 2020, although we haven't, I haven't seen the documents yet, but I have seen the, the draft, uh, guidance and, uh, it's again, hopefully will be out before the end of the year. You can imagine they have a few other things going on at CDC, um, with, with the pandemic. But what we are going to see are two changes in the gonorrhea therapy guidelines. The dose of ceftriaxone will be doubled to 500, which many people feel is actually overdue. And in fact, in some countries, for example, Hong Kong, they use a gram. Um, in China, I've actually read a couple of uh, cases where they use two grams routinely. So using more is a sort of time-honored way to fight this MIC creep. Whether that will stave off eventual full resistance, we really don't know. And clearly we're getting rid of the azithromycin because it's doing nothing. Um, in fact, it's probably just giving more fuel to the fire for the bug to develop more um to develop more um, resistance. The other thing about giving a higher dose of ceftriaxone is that it may provide better eradication of the pharynx. The 250 dose is probably 92% effective at treating pharyngeal gonorrhea, but we hope that the 500 dose will actually be even better. What about when you can't give ceftriaxones? You know, we're really in a corner here. We don't have a lot of options. These are the formal recommendations. I'm sure the azithromycin uh, will probably stay on there. The problem is because we've got nothing else, but we are really have our backs to the wall. We have genomycin and azithromycin um, or gemofloxacin and azithromycin. Um, the azithromycin two grams, as you know, is not well tolerated. Many people throw up about 25% actually. And genomycin requires an intramuscular injection, refrigeration. Gemofloxacin, we cannot get. 
uh, here. So really very unfortunate um, limitations. There are some hopeful developments, and I've listed here just a summary of where we are with novel antibiotics under study for gonorrhea. I think the most advanced and the most exciting right now study that we were involved in, the Zoliflotusin study, uh, it is a drug that is similar to a quinolone. It inhibits DNA synthesis in the same kind of way. Um, it does work at the rectum. It does not really work well at the pharynx. And that's going to be something you're going to see in many of the new agents. Um, the phase two trial was published in the New England Journal a couple of years ago. Um, and the phase three trial is now underway globally. So we should see some movement on this. Um, I'm hopeful in the next year or two. And then, um, a couple of other things, Jepatitisin actually looks pretty good. It may even have activity uh, at all sites. Uh, Solithromycin, unfortunately, uh, probably not going to fly, and delafloxacin, another advanced quinolone, also was not did not pan out. So right now, the top two drugs, I think, are reasonable uh, options, and hopefully we will see some movement in the next couple of years. So let's talk a little bit about sexual health during the pandemic. Um, if you've known anybody who had COVID or you are uh, a provider taking care of patients with COVID, I think the last thing on many people's mind is sex right now, but that doesn't mean that our patients are not doing their usual thing. Um, and what they are having to deal with is a major disruption of clinical services, as Dr. Gandhi already uh, alluded to. There's also incredible diversion of resources, especially public health resources to COVID-19. As you well know, our STD clinic has been closed here in Birmingham now since March. And so access to everything, including prevention, including syndromic assessment, including contraception and PrEP, um, are really badly compromised. And these are the data that um, the Fenway group presented at the uh, the virtual IAC meeting just last week, and thanks to, to Dr. Gandhi for providing me with the, the graphics. I just want to show you what they found at Fenway in Boston, and you may be familiar with Fenway. It's Community Health Center. Um, the population that they serve is mostly male, at least for the prep side of things, mostly white and mostly privately insured. Just to remind you what the COVID curve looked like um, during the months of April, May, and June in Massachusetts. That's up there, and you can see it really peaked in late April, and then um, good uh, public health state that it is, unlike some other states who will remain nameless, um, they got the epidemic beautifully under control. So what did they see at Fenway during this time? What they did was to look at the electronic medical records uh, from January 1st to April 30th of about 3,500 people. Um, they looked at the number of patients with an active PrEP prescription, and they looked at lapses, they looked at new starts, and they also looked at HIV testing. And what you can see in the upper right-hand corner um, is that new starts in red went down dramatically, um, and PrEP lapses went up in blue dramatically, with also um, a decline in the start of the month cohort size. And of course, because of the barriers to being seen, the HIV testing also went down considerably. What's even more disturbing, which, which Raj Gandhi alluded to, is that even with this relatively um, not small, but not gigantic group of men uh, that they were looking at or people that they were looking at, they were able to demonstrate that the people more likely to relapse um, or lapse, sorry, with their prep were younger. They were multi-race or had not reported their race. 
they were more likely to be Hispanic or Latinx, and they were more likely to be publicly insured, despite the fact that most of this group actually had private insurance. So again, getting back to this vulnerability, COVID is a master at not just the biological level, but also at the structural level, um, the system level in uh, providing barriers to our patients to staying well. And it's really something we're going to have a challenging time with. Um, on that first slide where I had the cartoon of the person who had COVID, I had a web address just to remind you to take a look at that. And it's a great webinar that the CDC has um, let uh, available it's, it was given in, I think, May um, by uh, several people from CDC, including Kim Warkowski, who's the author of the treatment guidelines, and Laura Bachman, uh, and a couple of other folks. And what they talked about was sexual health during the era of COVID. How do you help your patients who don't have access to an STD clinic, maybe don't even have access to you, maybe are being seen by telehealth um, without the avail availability of having an examination, at least with telehealth, you can see people's skin. Uh, so you can certainly look at rashes, which is helpful. Um, essentially, what we're talking about here is syndromic management, which we know is not the way to go. Um, we've been desperately trying to get rid of syndromic management in terms of the WHO guidelines for years, and they are actually on the verge of doing that, which is great. But but at some point, you got to sort of believe that if a patient is suffering and has a compatible syndrome with an STD, you've got to deal with it. So I don't want to go through all these slides in detail, but I want to just point out that the webinar and these slides are available, and they take you through. If somebody calls you up, a man has a a urethral discharge, what are you going to do? You're going to treat them with the regimens here. Suffixime orally at 800 milligrams. Again, remember, we don't recommend using that for routine treatment of gonorrhea. And when we did use it for routine treatment of gonorrhea, we used 400 milligrams. So this is doubling that dose, maybe giving us a little bit more uh, reassurance. And there are pharmacokinetic data to support this. So be aware that this is out there. They have a nice section on genital ulcer disease. Um, again, you can use oral doxycycline for early syphilis. Um, if somebody's pregnant, you can't get away with anything but benzathane penicillin. Uh, and um, which which everyone knows, and then for vaginal discharge syndromes, again, probably a week of metronidazole, which will get you trick NBV. And if you have a syndrome compatible with yeast, or that the woman believes is compatible with yeast, remember women are just as bad as physicians or providers are at syndromically specifically diagnosing vaginal syndromes. So without a laboratory evaluation it's really easy to get it wrong. That said, at least you can offer some relief based on these presentations. And then proctitis, uh, obviously concern when we're talking about unprotected uh, receptive anal sex. And very similarly, again, chlamydia and gonorrhea, but for a more extended dose. So just be aware that these are available. So speaking of the rectum and the pharynx, which we've been talking about, I want to point out that I can't stop emphasizing that STIs at the pharynx and the rectum really do matter. Um, they matter for many reasons. The pharynx is largely asymptomatic, as is the rectum, but they both 
are potential reservoirs for problematic development of antimicrobial resistance, particularly the pharynx, and of course the rectum, STIs untreated at the rectum do increase your risk of getting HIV, at least if you're not on PrEP. As Dr. Buckbinder showed, you can overcome an amazing predilection for getting HIV with adequate dosing of PrEP because it's so well concentrated in the rectum. Even if you've got gonorrhea or chlamydia there, your PrEP is still going to work, which is great. That said, still not a great thing to have chlamydia in your rectum for six weeks um, for obvious reasons. So what do we recommend for extragenital screening? First, I just want to point out this MMWR. It's a little bit over a year old now, but um, lest you think that extragenital infections are just common in men who come to seek care at HIV clinics or STD clinics, this was a really nice effort where they went to community venues, largely bars, restaurants, um, uh, gathering places, community centers, and they recruited men who have sex with men, quite a large number in five cities, and they looked at the swabs from the pharynx, the rectum, they looked at urine, and found that 15% of these men who were almost all asymptomatic actually had extragenital STDs, and you can see the prevalences of them there. So please remember, don't look, don't find, don't ask, don't tell, right? You've got to do a good sexual history, and you do have to look and screen regularly um, for men who report risk. The last thing I'll say about gonorrhea is that there is another ray of hope, and that's related to the fact that there was a finding from a group in New Zealand uh, just published about now two years ago, actually three years ago, that took advantage of the observation that there is quite a bit of similarity between a specific kind of meningococcus, Neisseria meningitidis, and Neisseria gonorrhea. Just the group B that, the group B meninge, and you may remember we have not had a group B meningococcal vaccine until very recently, and that's called Bexero. Um, and so what this group did was really interesting. They went back, there had been an outbreak of group B meningococcal meningitis in New Zealand in the 1990s, and they had actually developed a special vaccine um, that had an outer membrane vesicle antigen. Um, and what a lot of people got the vaccine, tons of people got the vaccine in the 90s. And what this group did was because it's New Zealand, you know, great sort of national health system, great database, you could go forward and see what the lifetime subsequent incidence of gonorrhea was in those people who had or had not been vaccinated in the 1990s. And the theory was, because of the overlap of this antigen, you might actually see a protective effect. They also looked at chlamydia because they figured out that, you know, if, if it was a nonspecific thing, then chlamydia should not have been reduced. And lo and behold, they actually showed that very thing. And you can take a look at the, the graphics if you've got time. But the bottom line is that the this vaccine, which was really not developed for gonorrhea at all, had an estimated protection of about 33%, and that effect was not seen for chlamydia. So what's exciting right now is we now have a, va a vaccine, Vexero, um, which not only has that outer membrane vesicle, but has three additional purified proteins that are new antigens to gonorrhea. Um, and so it has a very good chance, I think, of being protected. Um, I'll be running the study, which we hope will get up and running uh, late this summer. We are actually uh, gearing up for it, just hoping that COVID does not uh, completely derail the plans. But we will be studying whether two doses of this vaccine 
relative to placebo protects against gonorrhea in um, men and women uh, at very high risk for gonorrhea. So stay tuned for more of that. While we're waiting for a vaccine, what do we do? Uh, Carlos Del Rio brought up this concept of PEP for one of the cases. Um, remember, this is the Lancet ID paper that Jean-Michel Molina showed, uh, this, uh, that, that published. This was a study of on-demand post-exposure prophylaxis with doxycycline for men who have sex with men. And the idea here was that if you had unprotected sex and you took doxycycline immediately after, um, you could potentially prevent the setting up of gonorrhea, chlamydia, and syphilis. That was the idea. Worked great for chlamydia, worked great for syphilis, both reduced by about 70%, did not work for gonorrhea. Why? Because we know that most gonorrhea is resistant to doxycycline. Nonetheless, People got really excited about it. It reduced the overall incidence by 47% with about nine months of follow-up. Um, the analysis of antibiotic resistance, I still have not seen. I think that's going to be an important component. Um, and the bottom line is that there are several trials now underway. Some are here. Some are in Africa. Some are in women. Some are in MSM. And also, the horse is out of the barn. Some health departments and providers are already using it. Uh, we don't have data in reproductive age women, so we really do need that. The last thing I'll point out, um, there is one more not ray of hope, is that a reminder that hepatitis C can be sexually transmitted, particularly in men who are having very high risk uh, unprotected anal exposures. And this was a, a, a report in AIDS early in January that followed 429 men who were participating, again, in the Ipergay study, which studied the peri-sex uh, um, uh, pro- prep, uh, prep PEP regimen that we discussed before, um, and they showed a really high incidence of uh, acute hepatitis C in this cohort over 2.1 years. They were associated, men who had this infection were more likely to have high risk sex, higher number of partners and chemsex, which I defined for you down the bottom there. And the other interesting thing I think was interesting was that the H hepatitis C virus antigen immunoassay and plasma HCV RNA were positive about two months before antibody detection. Um, and men were largely asymptomatic and almost never, well, 25% of the time did have an increased ALT. So the concept here is that you may not want to rely on um, the antibody, you may want to think about direct tests to look for early diagnosis and early therapy. So more to be said on that. I'll just finish up by reminding people that, um, again, I don't think we're going to get to um, an era of healthy HIV um, sort of status for our communities or healthy HIV prevention unless we deal with STIs. And we've been talking about this a lot. I love this quote from Ken Mayer and Henry DeVries about um, we won't get to zero until we achieve uh, the potential uh, understanding and addressing the potentiating role of STI in the global pandemic in addition to responding to other drivers of HIV spread, many of which we've just talked about. And what I would really love to see, and I, I need to uh, kind of just continue to hammer this home, and I hope you all are, are out there being our disciples, is that 
what we think of as a status neutral continuum of HIV prevention care, which we have developed beautifully, needs to really be a status neutral continuum of sexual health care that includes HIV. Of course, you can acquire HIV through other means, and that's important to remember. But if we think about this as a compendium of STI screening, management, and prevention, I think we will be much better off. So that's my current, uh, my current um, uh, gospel. Just a few slides for resources. There's a great curriculum on STDs I would highly recommend. We started this when I was at the University of Washington, and David Spock and others have, uh, Christine Johnson, have continued it. It's a really fantastic uh, resource for self-study modules. You can get free CME. Also, there's an STD clinical consultation network that the STD training centers from the CDC run, and you can go ahead and um, and get help with your tough STD questions, which I know you have since I get many of them. And with that, I will stop. Great. Thanks so much, Jeannie. Um, uh, this, is, this is a wonderful review, as always. We have a couple questions here from uh, some folks, and then um, please uh, know how to do it by now. Um, it's amazing to me. I've been watching the number of participants through this through the day, and every, it, we haven't had any drop off. That's a real testament to the speakers and the program. It's just wonderful. So thanks. You did a great job on the anchor leg. So here we go. What website is it that you referenced with the syndrome treatment? It's um it's on the slide. So um it, you know that slide that I showed of the guy with COVID who looked completely wiped out. I should have just heard a picture of you, Doctor Sag. I don't know why. I didn't. <laughs> um, it's it's on that website. So it's on that slide. So if you can't find it, let me know and I'll send it to you. But it should be there. All right. Um, Bexero has a pretty unclear length of protection. If if the new vaccine works, would it be frequent boosting? What do you think? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, how long do you think you need to protect people from gonorrhea? Um, for many of our patients, it would need to be lifelong, right? Um, so I, I think that we will be looking carefully. People are going to be followed for just a year to two years, depending on when they enroll in the study. Um, but we will have great antibody assays, neutralizing antibody assays. So we may be able to model that a little bit. We're hopeful that it may be more potent than the duration of, of protection afforded to meningococcus because we've got those additional gonococcal antigens. So I hope that is true. I don't know. Great. Here's a challenging question. This uh, uh, provider has a patient with recurrent STIs. Syphilis back in May, treated with one dose of penicillin. Repeat titer only decreased by one fold from 128 to 164. Now he also has rectal gonorrhea and rectal chlamydia. What do you do? Uh, three doses of penicillin, azithrodoxy, uh, some other option. Yeah, so, so one concern I have, um, so if this was May of 2020, that's the question. And yeah, you now awesome. you're now looking at that titer in June or July. That's too early. Mm-hmm. Um, I see a lot of people who get very anxious and they think they will feel better if they check the titer and it's gone down a little bit. And then, of course, it usually hasn't gone down. It's either the same and sometimes it goes up. Because remember, the distinction from one titer to another is probably just random. You, you, you really, to have a significant change in titer, it should be two dilutions or two titers. So my first thing is, why did you check it? 
Um, you shouldn't check it. If it was a three months titer, it's good to check it. Although I don't really get the recommendation to do that because you're not really supposed to act on it. So I would say hold your horses, um, you know, continue to look at it, look at it again in six months. If it's a big increase in six months, then I think you probably do want to treat it. Now, what's concerning about this person, of course, is that they've acquired STIs in the interim. So then the question becomes, do you just like put them on doxy? pep um, and hope that all this goes away, which would not be a bad idea. But but I think the teaching points are don't react too early. Um, if you do it at three months and it's gone crazy in a, in a compatible setting, then yeah, you might want to retreat. But we don't usually recommend reacting to those titers unless it's really, really significant or there's a compatible clinical syndrome or a known re-exposure. Yeah, that's really, those are great points, Jeannie. Um, so the, here's a question. Do you think there's going to be a change in the guidelines regarding treatment of rectal chlamydia? Yeah, that's a great question. I do. Um, there is probably going to be late breaking news on this at the CDC STD prevention conference that's happening in September, which I can't share. Um, but it is good news and it will probably inform uh, change in treatment. Those of you who take care of patients with rectal chlamydia know that the failure rates for single dose azithromycin, um, when you're treating what is presumably a non-lymphogranuloma venereum strain or non-LGV strain, have been disappointing, right? I mean, I we see a lot of people who come back, and most of us, I think, have tended to go more towards the seven to 10 days of doxycycline. So all I'll say is that that presentation will address that question. And um, I think the guidelines probably will respond accordingly. Great. Um, what can you tell us if, if patient has uh, gonorrhea, you treat it, um, and then, and then um, they persist with uh, another diagnosis of gonorrhea infection. Is it the same um, episode that you treated and it somehow had resistance? How, how can you tell? Most of these cases are reinfections. And why? Because we are terrible at treating partners. Um, we, we can't, and it's not just us, right? I mean, many of our patients have more partners than um, we can often identify and really adequately treat. So um, I would say 90, especially with our antibiotic resistance profiles in the United States, we're not seeing, if you really gave somebody a shot of zetraxone, odds are overwhelming that you actually successfully treated that infection. Um, almost certainly your patient was reinfected, and then you're going to want to talk about whether or not you were able to get your patients treated. Remember, expedited partner management is legal in almost all states. Um, and even if it's not legal, there are sometimes ways around it. So you can call prescriptions in for patients' partners. You can give the patient the medication to give to their partners. Um, you can give them a prescription for their partners. So that's really important. Um, this is a provider says one of their HIV patients runs a persistent uh, RPR of one to 32, just flat out, flat out. What do you do? Yeah, this um, zero fast um, state or um, um, sort of, uh, what is, there's another word for it that I'm blanking on right now, but we used to call it zero fast, but, but persistent zero reactivity is more common in people with HIV, I believe, although it's been hard to really prove that in the, in the uh, population-based studies that have been done. Um, I would say that um, the the best thing to do is to be as confident as you can that it's not a CNS infection, a reservoir in the CNS. 
um, which sometimes requires an LP, but may not if you're comfortable that the patient did respond and has absolutely no symptoms um, and that it's been truly stable um, and it's not reinfection. So it's either typically relapse reinfection or an untreated CNS reservoir, uh, central nervous system reservoir. Um, I have seen patients who got multiple courses of cefriaxone. Actually, one patient we heard about a few years ago ended up losing his gallbladder because of the this, uh, this toxicity of so much ceftriaxone. Um, I would not keep treating these people. That's that's a really important point. Once you feel like it's stable, it's probably partly related to some hypergamma globulinemia that we do see with HIV. So I would follow it annually and do a good routine risk assessment um, and conversation with the patient. Yeah, we were joking amongst ourselves at UAB about you keep giving this one gram of subtraxone over and over, you have to administer a walker at the same yeah, time. So exactly, can- yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, that is, yeah. yeah. <laughs> gonorrhea vaccine. What's our status? So gonorrhea vaccine. Um, so the study that I mentioned um, will start, I hope, in August or September. It will occur at um, probably four or five sites in the United States, um, three in the southeast um, in Atlanta, uh, in Birmingham and in New Orleans, and then in Washington, D.C. at some of the military sites and a prep clinic there, and then in Thailand, uh, three sites in Thailand. Um, so I'm hopeful that we will have, well, we're probably going to roll about 2,000 people. I'm hopeful that we will have an answer within maybe three years, um, unless we see something sooner. So uh, I think it's hopeful, um, but, you know, we've all seen clinical trials not work before, so um, I never get too attached to them. Yeah. And then I guess we'll finish with uh, this this clinical case real quickly, a story of an older man who had one partner for four years uh, back in 1989, got treated for syphilis. In March 19, 2019, he had a negative RPR. February, it was uh, positive, but only at one-to-one. Um, TPA, of course, was positive. Um, so is this just that variability in the titer? It, well, and also, you know, the reactivity of both RPR and the treponemal test increased with age. So if you follow people long enough, and there have been great cohort studies that have looked at this, you will find a certain proportion of people who have a quote-unquote false positive, reactive, treponemal and non-treponemal antibody as they age, particularly as you get into your 80s. Um, So I think in this gentleman, it's most likely just a biological uh, kind of not really a false positive because he was truly infected before, um, but just a byproduct of aging and, and probably fluctuations in his titers. Yeah. I want to get this one in because I think it's important. The question is when can we start giving or should we start giving the 500 milligram ceftriaxone yeah. uh, versus the 250 plus azithro? Great question. Um, I don't think it is too soon. Um, technically, if you have it, you could do it. Um, do we really need to do it? Um, I, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, I worry that part of the reason we are seeing more infection is because we have so many untreated pharyngeal infections. And if that's, is that because we just aren't looking and finding them there and they're an undetected reservoir, or is it because they're just not optimally treated with 250 milligrams? So I, I would use it. Um, honestly, if, if I had it and had access to it, but know that, you know, the guidelines technically are not out yet. Some places have already made the transition. Yeah. Great. Wonderful talk. Wonderful discussion. Thank you, Thank you very much, Jeannie.